0: Welcome back to another episode of Safe and Effective, the Medical Human Factors Podcast, where we talk about everything and anything medical human factors. Today, I'll be speaking with Maggie Reef about her experience with human factors as a device engineer, focusing on device engineering and device design, and about her experiences with human factors in medical device development, speaking from her unique perspective and how human factors shaped her outlook on device engineering and design. And later, I'll be getting into the longstanding debate of qualitative versus quantitative data. You can listen to the full debate with Dr. Burt Broquet in our next episode. Now, let's listen to our exciting discussion with Maggie Reef. Welcome back, everybody. Today, I have Maggie Reef with me. She's a device engineer, and we had the pleasure of working together for a really long time, actually, on a development. And throughout, we made lots of discoveries about human factors from the perspective of a device engineer. So, With that, we'd like to welcome Maggie. Hello, Maggie. Hi, Heidi. Thank you. Happy to be here. Thank you for coming on and thank you for taking the time to talk to us. So right off the bat, what do you think about human factors? What a question.
1: So, yeah, you and I got to work together on a very novel injector. And so we knew it was going to be a different user experience for patients or end users, but we didn't know how different and how to quantify those differences and then how to feed that into the development lifecycle. So we got our most valuable data from Human Factors, wide array of you know nurses, nurse practitioners, doctors, pharmacists, our particular injector was going to be intended for a COVID vaccine at the beginning, and then it took on kind of a number of other intended uses over its lifetime. But being able to actually understand, one, the cognitive process of those end users and how they would actually observe the product, observe the packaging, the IFU, and then actually how they would use it in their hands. And oftentimes, you know, those two things would go hand in hand. Their first cognitive perceptions would actually influence how they would end up using the product or misusing the product, right? So getting all those tidbits of human factors insights was really critical in the
0: development process. What did you, well, let me ask you this. What did you know about human factors before that project?
1: Yeah, so I had spent many years at a big pharma company in life cycle management. So most of our human factors were most bridging assessments, comparability, protocols, where we really compared our final package, pre-filled syringe or pen or injector to kind of whatever was previously done by the actual manufacturer of that med device. So we did very few formal human factor studies. Most of them were evaluations. In my undergrad, I come from a BME, biomedical engineering background, and so we do touch on human factors, but having actually run through an entire formative study and a preparation for what hopefully would be a summative study was not something we typically did in life cycle management. The thought process was we're trying to impact as little of that validation data as possible. And justify our way through that, right? which most of the times is reasonable, especially when you're handling pre-filled syringe products whose components in use is very well known and established. But obviously, for a novel injector, first of its kind, very, very different situation.
0: Yeah, that is definitely true. And that is usually where the human factors researcher... Slash engineer slash scientist, whatever the trend word right now is that we like to label ourselves with. That is always the most interesting part for us to be able to have that groundwork, right? To, as you said, like how does the end user perceive the product? And then how do they actually realize the perception into action, right? That's always the most fascinating part about it because. There are, you know, there are many terms we can apply here and say there's transfer, there's this, there's that, there's mental models. But at the end of the day, what always was interesting and still is fascinating to me in my job is how different our perception is from our action and performance. Sometimes, most times, especially in med devices, right? There is this preconceived notion that we use what we know in order to design easier and safe usable products. But what the problem sometimes with those is, is that like you said, very known components, right? They're also used in a very particular way. So how do you rid that out of somebody's mind? without ridding the basic knowledge, which is how to execute the function with it, right? So we could take the example of a pen, right? How do you get somebody to apply the knowledge of, yes, you do have to press down for the ink to come out, but I don't necessarily want you to press on the top. That's what you're used to, but I don't want you to do that. I want you to press on the side. So, the pressing the button you are aware of, but I don't want you to do it from the end. I want you to do it from the side. And that, that right there, that, it's not even like a dichotomy, that like contradiction almost, that is like the hurdle sometimes when it comes to novel designs, especially. So, with that, like, what did you find most interesting to learn now that you said you went from like a life cycle part and now you were on a project where human factors was applied entirely?
1: Yeah, so it's, it's funny because what you're talking about, right, with the pen, you press a button, you get an action. It was almost like our human factors data was telling us, okay, we don't want them to press the button. We we want a different mechanism so that it's pretty clear that you're not supposed to press this button. And sometimes as engineers, we're like, oh, this widget is so cool. Like this feature is so awesome that like I want to design it into my product. And that is great from an engineering perspective, but you know, I think Apple has it best, right? The simplest solution is probably the best solution, the most elegant solution. So overcomplicating or making a really fancy widget or something completely novel does not resonate with users because your users, in our case, and in many cases of MedDevice, they're not engineers, right? They're doctors, Mm. There's pharmacists, they're nurses, they're practitioners. And so, They want to use something that is functional in every aspect. So making it cool with a widget is not going to help. And if you can find a way to leverage the pressing of the button or whatever mental model they have and implement it in such a way that they can understand it in your medical device, your success rate will be much higher. Right. But now we're going into changing a mental model and the way that people act. Right. So if I. I'm always used to pressing a button, say I have to twist instead or or pull off instead. How am I going to get them to recognize that, one, nope, I'm not pressing a button, and two, I have to do this instead? Mm-hmm. Uh, and achieving that is a lot harder than, than just saying, you know, do this in my instructions for use, because who reads those anyways? We've watched many a study, Heidi, where they just take it out and they just throw it in the trash. So. You know, and then you ask yourself, OK, how do I get them to read that? If you Can I make it pretty? Can I put placement inside the packaging? Things of that nature. So the mental model shift is the hardest one to do because people do what they know. And changing that is very difficult.
0: Yes. God, the plight, right? The plight of what human factors has become. Oh, by the way, for our listeners, All you rookies out there who want to cross over into the field or come and join the human factors, medical human factors community in device development, IFU stands for instructions for use, just so you know. Oh, you're fine, 100%. I mean, who says instructions for use in our industry? Nobody. So (laughs) I think that's perfectly fine. But what Maggie said here, what you said, like, is so that's that always triggers my thought on the how we've become the IFU writers and how we're engaged in projects because as I recall we were connected because somebody said you needed help with instructions for use and then somebody said, oh, I know somebody who can write them really, really well. So let's talk to her. And then I just remember going, all right, well, my fate is sealed because now I won't deliver and it'll be boom, my reputation gone. And what came to be was just such a fascinating project from a perspective of yeah I think at the end of the day, we wrote the most phenomenal instructions for use. Those will forever be a masterpiece of mine, but I don't know how many studies we did on them. But at the end of the day, what was fascinating, what always held us back is exactly what you said with that mental model right you You are going up against something that is so innate, human right for us to think. Oh, well, that's a button. I'm going to press it. So why did you put, I don't know, I'm just making stuff up now. Why did you put a red flag around it? Am I not supposed to press the button? Am I supposed to press the button? Is it? Is the button pressed differently? Now you just confused me. I thought it was a regular button. Now you just confused me. Now I got to read the instructions. Let me get the instructions. Now I'm reading the instructions. Now I see that I skipped a couple of steps. Well, now I wonder, can I even still use this product? Because I just messed up the first four steps, right? So you get in this like crazy use steps confusion that now you've just left your user completely lost, right? And I think that's something we saw often. and. So I guess, how would you say, or what was the most surprising thing? I want to put a little fun in this. I mean, we did a lot of studies together. Mm -hmm. So what were some of the most surprising things you saw where you had to pause a moment, reflect and go, oh, wow, human factors is more than just how the user uses it?
1: Now it's a great question, but I want to touch on kind of you talked about those user tasks and them skipping yeah. the first four or five. So number one, I think the most shocking part across the board is that you ask these users to come in and show us, you know, treat this like any day in the office. What would you do in your normal practice? And a majority of them skip the first five steps, like you said. And that really is where user task analysis obviously came in and I'm not sure people recognize how valuable those are, right? Okay, step by step, we're just going to write what they do and what they don't do. But it becomes very evident where in the use process you need to focus on drawing attention to, right? So when they skipped our first five steps, we knew right away we need to do something in here to either draw attention to what they're supposed to do or make it impossible for them to do what they're doing when they skip steps one through four right so you're really designing around misuse or incorrect use or you know it really is misuse and i think to your point that really was the most shocking that normal people and i include myself in this we don't read instructions Mm -hmm. and it's because we just want to get the job done most of the time Uh and so as a device engineer and device organization, we need to ensure that the product we come out with gets the job done safest, fastest, best way possible. And again, it's all surrounding the patient, right? So what I'm giving this end user, in our case, it was a nurse practitioner, pharmacist, something like that. We want to enable them the best way possible to give that therapy to the patients with the minimal amount of misuse or delay in therapy. And skipping the first five steps and then having to go back to the instructions, obviously, it's not going to give your patients the best possible use scenario or experience. So you really advocate in the design process to find a way to really hone in on those certain use steps to actually course correct the use
0: experience. Which is kind of interesting because you touch up on something, and I almost blanked, with my wonderful ADHD brain, (laughs) because I already drifted off into moments of us seeing things. I'm running a movie in my head. But what you touched on was, I think, is so critical for people to understand about human factors in the human behavior in itself. Because at the end of the day, you said, even I don't read instructions, right? We don't like reading instructions. Now, where the root cause on that is, I mean, we could stipulate for days, weeks, months, years, we could argue. Part of it, I assume, I don't know this for anybody listening, I I can't prove this, but part of it, I think, surely comes from the faster pace we live in these days with information and with the information overload. I think even looking and reflecting upon myself, I read more instructions twenty years ago than I do now, for sure, hundred percent. I just ordered a record player because my old one was broken. Yes, that's how old I am, people. I have <laughs> in more style vinyls these days. <laughs> I know they're very expensive now again because they're in style. I don't like when I just hit the ground again when things are back in style, but. What I found fascinating there was I avoided reading the instructions so much that I ended up almost setting up my new brand new record player incorrectly and the sound wasn't that great. And I'm like, what am I doing wrong? And then I tried to read the instructions and in my defense... Having ADHD, reading instructions is a nightmare already because we don't retain the first sentence we read, so we're reading the sentence over and over and over and we don't retain it. But at the same time, that experience is something I try to have every couple of months with something because I need to remind myself how difficult it is for somebody to follow instructions, to actually get them to read them, to acknowledge that they even need them right? Despite something being so obvious. So when you say like, just getting them to read it, right? And then getting them to see this particular thing. Yeah, they have a mental model. But now we have to design, because they're skipping the first four steps, we have to design against that. So then comes the question, does it even... Pay off to use something novel in that moment because now all your design efforts, all your development efforts are going towards making the user see something that they can't see because they are seeing what it really is. I don't know if that even made sense. Let's go back to the pen, right? Like, we're trying to get them to see that they have to press the button, but we didn't put the button where it's supposed to be, and we didn't put the function behind the button like it is supposed to be. So now we're asking them, yeah, of course, use your transfer knowledge, use your current knowledge of how a button works on a pen and go ahead. But at the same time, oh, hold on, let let us give you four previous steps that tell you that's not how you do it. So. Yeah. Do you think at that point, where was your headspace at at that point? What it came down to, to
1: me, was everyone is going to have transfer knowledge and you have to decide, can you use that in your design to actually encourage them to use the device the right way? Or is it not worth it? Is is it so hard to find a way to transfer that knowledge To use your new novel device, that they're just going to fail every time. And again, you go back to user task analysis what is the percentage of failure? And as you make incremental design changes throughout these studies, your goal is obviously that those user task analyses show that you're improving. But if you are stuck at a low success rate over and over, it's clearly sending you a message that you need to change this design. And I think that is. One of the most critical parts in human factors is recognizing when you have a design feature that it's failing in studies. And it's not just because this particular set of users couldn't figure it out, but it's truly because your device, your novel device, yes, novel, it cannot be understood right away in someone else's hands. And so you either need to make a design change to fix that And again, or it
0: becomes a trend, right? Yeah. Just always going to be the same. Because at the end of the day, I think we saw lots of different things. I think we could have made a lot of things work. And at the end of the day, we saw a lot of different, a lot of different colorful ways of how to get to the last use step. From the front, right from from the top, but at the culprit of it, when you see that the user isn't grasping it, isn't performing the way you let's just say assumed they would because. And I think this is a very interesting, this, I'm going to go on a side tangent here. I want to see what your thoughts are on this as well, Maggie. This is particularly interesting for pharma, for combination products, right? Because at the end of the day, most, and I will, don't come for me, most products, most combination products do really fall into the realm of devices and products that use let's just say, standardized or known, very established designs, right? Like Mm -hmm. we're talking pre-filled syringes, we're talking injection kits, we're talking injectors, pens, auto-injectors. Even when a novel design is applied, it is ultimately something somebody's already seen in a similar manner. So, Obviously, there's infusion systems and drug delivery systems that don't involve injection per se. But when we think of the boom in the healthcare today, where most drugs that used to be administered in medical settings, let's say you have to go to your doctor for a specific injection or da da da, right? With the technology and the knowledge and the abilities we have today, most of those products are moving into the home environment. So we're entrusting patients with the injection of things like these devices, the drugs that come within them. So it is interesting to see that even using components and intuition and fundamental knowledge that most people already have of certain shapes, forms, actions, features, still doesn't necessarily just deliver you a straightforward design and use, Mm -hmm. right? So with that, I think the pharma industry, the combination product industry, is plagued a lot with this old school thinking and even though human factors is not new, I know, mm-hmm. but the new thinking of human factors, right? Because even just because of requirements, it's not that long ago that pharm- pharmaceutical companies did not have to file human factors parts, right? Because they're just producing quote unquote a drug. But with the classification of combination products, right? There is a part where there is a medical device. So now, the FDA, not just the FDA, there's lots of regulations. MDR has looked at it as well. And so, MDR, sorry, medical device regulation has said the same. And authorities all over the globe are agreeing with the combination product element. So now you are required to show that that device can be used, your product can be used. Yes, you are delivering a drug, but you are delivering it through the mechanism of an injector, for instance. So the pharma companies now have to tackle this and often come in with a mindset of pharma. And that's where I think the plot thickens, right? And it gets really interesting. Yeah. So how did coming from the pharma world, Maggie, and hmm. coming from mainly life cycle in the beginning of your career and how did that then Enhance or how do human factors enhance your understanding of device engineering and design?
1: Yeah. So, to your point, right, Heidi, the the regulations that came out of FDA for combination products 10, 15 ish years ago and have certainly changed the industry, right? And so, when you come out with those regulations after companies have been launching combination products for years without considering that human factors piece, There's a bit of, and I hate to use this word because it's so scarring, but remediation. (laughs) So (laughs) when you remediate a product, your first assessment is really to understand, all right, where are my gaps? What do I have to do? And there are certain cases where your risk files, your complaints, your risk scores, you will assess them and find that there is some critical design, use step, something that users are doing wrong. And in life cycle management, it's very hard to make design changes. And so oftentimes you look at those instructions for use to obviously guide users in an optimized way to stop doing whatever it is they're doing and promote whatever they should be doing. So some of the unique products that I worked on early in my career, human growth hormone, right, for kids. And so you actually have to understand how, one, the parents of that child are going to use that product to administer the drug to their child, and two, how that child is going to administer their own medication if they have to, right? Mm -hmm. So um, it broadens your scope in how an adult is going to use a product versus a child, and your instructions for use need to be read such that a child can understand them and there are plenty of parents who struggle to read some of these instructions for use particularly for pens or advanced injectors where it's a multi-step process so really coming from pharma i was able to understand wide array of products various use cases at home in the hospital outpatient clinics self administration all ages all varieties cups doses spoons and so there are some obvious products that prefilled syringes, okay, everyone knows how to use this. But when you pair it with, say, like a needle safety device that has a higher failure rate, okay, are people stabbing themselves? That becomes the trigger in post-market surveillance, right? That you then say, okay, something is wrong here. And whether it's how they're using the activation of the safety device, or it's actually a design feature of that safety device, right? One, that post-market surveillance data will guide you and kind of help you understand design versus user. And then again, you tap into the design validation of that product, right? You Mm -hmm. open up your design history file. You hope that this legacy product has something in there that can talk to it. And if it doesn't, you have to do something, right? And so for about a decade, I think big pharma was really struggling to catch up in their human factor space, particularly to your point, Hedy, if they had these kind of well-known combination products that were established, used often, lower risk, so to speak. But the industry is certainly changing. And there are more and more human factor studies actually being done on some of these nuanced products. And I think you see a trend in industry to more personalized medicine and at-home care. And people don't want to spend hours in a hospital receiving treatment You're going to see the industry continue to do more and more human factor studies and make it a priority because we're shifting so much to personalized medicine. When I send this combination product home with someone, they have to be able to use it. And I can't assume that they have the same understanding as a medical practitioner.
0: Right. I mean, how would you? How could you? (laughs) Most of the time, if they have ever had a home product, that required more than oral intake of a tablet or capsule or a powder or a liquid. Then most of the time we are talking about injection devices. Mm -hmm. Um, Most of the time we are now talking about pens because the industry does recognize that at some point you need to find the happy medium of what people can use effectively, safe. And with let's call it what it is, right, with a success rate. Because mm-hmm. you you want them to actually inject the very expensive drug in most cases because, well, we haven't moved on yet from the private healthcare industry, so the drugs are expensive. And we can't, I think it's also very important to say, like, we can't develop devices that keep Failing at having the patient dose themselves if it is an injector at home and the patient's dosing it. But from that perspective, you are correct. The pharma industry is catching up and there are more and more studies done. I want to put a little twist in our conversation here and talk about so lessons learned for you. You spoke about like the surprising aspect and how you found it fascinating to see that. They just, you could not get them to do the first four steps, right? When we look at how pharma is catching up and how your experience was with, and still is, with human factors and how it informs your process and your day-to-day work and your development, do you see human factors advancing or regressing again? And let me be a little bit more clear because it's something that I've observed over the last, it's for me, it's still a little recent. I've only been seeing it for about a year or two where I'm getting this impression that I can't seem to shake that we are more and more being titled testing houses and that the only thing we do is really just do the studies. The human factors people just do the studies. You do, as I like to say, do usability, you know, and Mm -hmm. go do human factors, do the study. But that in itself, what is your outlook on it or what do you see? Yeah, so I,
1: I mean, one, we found such value right in our human factors study, especially if you're in the middle of development and you are starting with a brand new product. You really need to leverage as much data as you possibly can. Your resources are limited. You need to understand this product in and out, failure modes, et cetera. And the best way you can do that without testing the thing over and over and over and and tons and hundreds of sample sizes is running human factor studies, right? And so I think there is... A, shift in industry to leverage human factor studies, but what you do with them and how it fits in your strategic plan, either launching a product, whether it's a BLA, it's a biologic, whether it truly is going to be just a generic combination product, whatever it is, you one, have to meet the minimum requirements for FDA if that is the authorizing body you want approval from. But you have. Human factors design validation across the board is a requirement, right? And so, how strategically are you going to meet those requirements? Because I can tell you just handing off a device and saying, okay, here, testing house, do this. Okay, you spend a bunch of money to do this, and now what, right? Did you pass? Did you fail? Did you pass with reservations? Are you still going to meet the FDA requirements? And again, A lot of companies, I think, especially if you're pharma, you're so concerned about getting that drug through clinical that you're not so concerned about the actual drug delivery mechanism of it at the end of the day. And so you kind of play catch up with your human factor studies and you say, all right, we'll just throw this into usability at the end and see how it goes. And that's probably one of the worst things you can do to consider human factors at the end of your development cycle is really setting up most likely failure for your product when it actually gets into a user's hands and so the best advice i can possibly give is to actually create a development strategy that includes human factors milestones throughout the entire life cycle of your product over the course of six months i think we had done five or six different studies And they all had a different purpose. We had one human factor study in the middle of COVID where it was all virtual and it was a cognitive walkthrough. So not not every study has to be start to end finish. But if there are particular points of your process and your user's journey that you know, I don't know enough about this yet, let's put a small formative study and just see what we get from people. And I think there's a difference in organizing various studies that arrive at some conclusion or give you some set of data that you can then leverage in development versus just saying, all right, I'm going to develop this drug. I'm going to throw in some kind of drug delivery system and we'll hand it off to some house to do usability testing at the end. And you can run the risk of doing that, right? You can, and maybe it might work out for you, but more times than not, you still need those milestone points, those summative and those formative human factor studies that really point to some success in users' hands that have been strategically thought out with some kind of risk-based approach.
0: Long-winded answer, but (laughs) Well, no, but wonderfully met at the end with risk-based approach, right? That is what human factors is. And so I guess wrapping up our conversation, kind of how you ended it on the risk-based approach is pretty, pretty pretty, pretty neat. I mean, like I that planned, was planned. I don't that, know. Was, that was very good. <laughs> that was very good. But at the end now, you speak to something that is pretty critical. And I think that would be my kind of my last point to make here. You say involving human factors, right? Not just at the end. and And me mentioning that we are more and more looked at as testing houses kind of, first of all, Devalues what human factors is, diminishes the science overall, right? We are a science and using the full fledged hammer of human factors is much more sensible than just trying to, oh yeah, the nails already halfway Mm -hmm. in. Let's just ram it in now and with everything that is required. But like, we're not going to look at all the benefits we can get from the actual development of human factors. So, what would you say, first of all, would you recommend doing human factors without human factors experts? And then, second of all, probably getting away from this like testing house idea that we are only people who do studies, because that's not what we do. We use the studies to gain the data to do the development, to apply the science. But how would you say, does it? separate like good human factors from let's just say mediocre
1: yeah so the first piece is can anyone do human factors so number one it is very easy to start off your human factors journey if you are you've got a brand new device and you just want to see how it works go find 10 friends and see how widely differently they use it, it you Your budget constraint, you've got kind of an idea of what you want to change. It's very easy for you to find some kind of human factors feedback, how unofficial it might be. But to your point, anyone can sign off and say, all right, run this protocol, give me some data. But it's what you do with that data and how strategic you are in implementing that data into your device development lifecycle. You can get an enormous amount of data from users. You, you can run them through an entire study, have the post debrief with them, ask them a million questions of why they did what they did, and really understand, again, the cognitive process or whatever mental model they're using to use your product. Could be right, could be wrong. You don't know. But it's finding those experts that can tell you how you're going to get that data, that can understand the line of questioning to arrive at that data. And then how you're going to use that to inform your design or packaging or whatever it is about your device that you're testing in that study. So sure, you can run some studies and just get a pretty package and put it in your DHF. But you're going to get your patients are going to get the most out of it if you take that data and do something productive with it.
0: Yes. And for that, you need human factors. (laughs) design history file is the DHF, by the way. And the thing that Maggie came to at the end is a very valuable lesson, I think, for all of us to understand is, yes, you can run a bunch of studies and yes, you can go to these testing houses who provide moderators who will run your protocol and will do the study the way you think you want it done. and But at the end of the day, if you don't have a human factors expert in influencing your protocol to get you to the data that you are trying to get and to actually have a strategy around it, what are you going to do with it and how you're going to implement it and how can you even get to that data in the first place? Maggie spoke to task analyses, right? Maggie spoke to things in, in our conversation that are very valuable human factors insights that actually come from human factors, I know engineers want to think everything comes from your realm of the universe, but it actually comes from ours and so that's always fascinating to me to hear that. Well, this was a lovely conversation. Thank you so much, Maggie for coming on. It's always such a pleasure to talk to you and it is definitely fascinating to hear it from somebody's perspective who does not uh, have a human factors degree. And does not live (laughs) in this world 100% of the time. But actually, at the end of the day, really, I feel from what I've seen walked away with having expanded your knowledge and experience so vastly that you, I mean, I've seen you blossom into a leader that is just amazing to see that you weren't great before, but you were definitely a device engineer coming in. And Mm -hmm. you walked out with me on that project being kind of a research and development leader. And I think that's that in itself is just beautiful to watch that human factors doesn't just touch devices, it touches minds and careers as well, right? So that was really, really, really cool to see. Well, thank you, Maggie. Any last wise words you want to share with us? You know... In our industry, it's all
1: about the patient. And the only thing, the closer you get to the patient, the better off you're going to be. And Human Factors will give you a live read on how your patients will use your product or how your end users will use your products to influence a patient's journey. And so, again, it all comes back to the patient.
0: Uh, Right. And we are the patient's advocate. So, perfect. All right, then. Thank you so much for listening today. And thank you, Maggie. Maggie, where can the people find you if they want to talk to you more about device sure. engineering and how to be an amazing leader in research and development. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, you can connect with me
1: on LinkedIn. It's just Maggie Reef, So just my name, you'll find me. I currently work as a head of R&D at a startup called GeneXus. So you can reach out, contact me. I'm always happy to have a chat with anyone and grow my network.
0: Oh, well, thank you again, Maggie, for coming on. And Everybody enjoy the fact that human factors is indeed everywhere at all times. (laughs) Welcome back everybody, quantitative versus qualitative data, the age old question. And while we debate this age-old question, at nauseam at human factors events, and quite frankly, at any kind of research or statistical analysis conference that you might attend or might not, the qualitative data camp on one end and the quantitative data camp on the other end, there are always going to be people like me who simply believe that robust data, especially human factors data... In medical device development has to have elements of both in it. When thinking about observational studies and thinking about data, most robust data will always have elements of both in it, quantitative and qualitative. After all, we are observing humans interacting with products, medical devices, combination products. I mean, at the end of the day, you need to know how many times somebody did action X in order to determine whether it is an abnormality, a trend, that there's significance or whatnot. And while I'm pretty certain that we can all agree on the qualitative part, or if not, at least find consensus and jump on board with it, the quantitative data is the one that seems to be troubling for most, with one camp saying that human factors, engineers, scientists, researchers shouldn't necessarily be bothered with complex quantitative data. And while I can agree with most parts on that, I think at the end of the day, human factors, researchers are researchers. We are scientists, human factors is a science and any human factors program, whether undergrad or graduate level being a science program should have encompassed at least the fundamentals of statistics. And while some of us enjoyed those classes and some of us didn't, there's always going to be camps on both ends of the spectrum. One saying pretty well-rounded and advanced knowledge of statistics is a fundamental to being a great researcher. Others will say that the power and strength in human factors data and research is the qualitative side. And I can jump on board with both. But that doesn't solve the question of the problem, Which data and what statistical model should we use? How should we be reporting it? What do we consider effective data and what do we consider enough? Does it have to show statistical significance? What is satisfactory? What will serve the science needs and what will serve in our case, FDA needs? design validation needs, human factors validation needs. I mean, I could go on and on and on, but really, doesn't it come down to one thing? Shouldn't your data be collected based on a protocol that has been tailored to fit the needs of the product with regards to human factors validation? So my question is, if that's the case, then having general guidelines for reporting standards should be sufficient. However, we know the problem is that some CAMs will try to do the minimum, and it's their right to do, and some will apply the models that we think serve the research the best. Let's talk about an example, Human Factors Validation Study. So when we take a look at the guidances and we take a look at various different models, statistical models within these guidances, we see, for instance, in our Bible, the original guidance from CDRH. The focus is on qualitative data to report use problems encountered on critical tasks, and to focus on those by reporting the incidences and the use problems by severities and providing root cause analysis for how these use problems occurred and what the root cause is, and whether it is design-related or not, and if it is design-related has mitigation been performed as much as possible to the point of where the benefits of the product outweigh the risks, right? From a residual risk analysis, risk benefit statement. However, looking at CEDR guidance, and while it's leaning most of its content on original CDRH guidance, when looking at specified Guidances, for example, the ANDA guidance and comparative use studies, we all of a sudden see more complex statistical models pop up. For instance, in this particular guidance, the ANDA one, we are talking about an inferiority model. And in these models, we rely on delta values. But with our industry being confidential with most of our research, Most of the time, these delta values for validation studies, or in general for any usability study, don't really exist. So now you're left with guessing or literally conducting a study to establish the delta value. And if you have to establish and calculate the delta value from another study, then really you're not saving any efforts. So how do you get those values in order to apply these models? Now. I do find it interesting that on the CEDAR side, we have higher requirements for statistics, meaning we are asking for more complex statistical models, I should say, than we have on the CDRH side. And let's be clear, it actually makes sense because CEDAR, coming from the side of pharmaceutical, pharmacological effectiveness, right? They're trying to establish effectiveness in their clinical work and efficacy of pharmacological products. And on the CDRH side, we simply talk about, which is completely justified, effectiveness of usability of a product being used effectively and safely by the user according to its intended use in its intended use environment. And that's really what we're trying to establish. So the question is really, If that's where we're coming from, both sides, shouldn't we find more consensus in between? I mean, because here's the thing, whether a drug is involved or not, shouldn't we have a unified approach? The drug isn't tested in human factors validation. It's the effectiveness of its use, the safety of its use, whether or not the drug is effective when it's not performed correctly that of course has to be considered in use-related risk analysis, meaning overdose, underdose, and we all understand that, but we're not testing the efficacy of the pharmacological in the human factors testing. We are looking at things from the perspective of usability and safe use and effectiveness of its use. We are concerned with usability, with the user actually being able to perform the task in order to get the treatment effectively. So I would care to venture and say, if you have a use related risk with a severity of five, meaning pretty severe for a combination product, what makes it more severe than a task with a medical device that has a severity rating of five that doesn't have a drug involved? They're both rated at severity five. How you get there is irrelevant right now for this question or for this discussion. So the question here really is, why would you require more stringent or more advanced statistical models and analysis of combination products than you do in medical devices? A medical device can be very complicated. We can talk about imaging systems in the OR or navigation systems that require 16 different hookups to other systems, I mean, we should have a unified approach. We should be as critical as possible on devices, whether or not there's a drug involved or not. We are the advocates of the users, of the patients. We are there to help them receive the best possible, effective, and safe outcome out of the use of these devices and combination products. So shouldn't we find a unified model in human factors validation testing for medical device development, including combination products that takes the same approach and then allow the researcher to apply their knowledge to design the study and tailor it to best fit the product in order to validate such on the level of complexity of the product, in order to have the best outcome. So with that being said, I invited my buddy and my friend, my favorite professor in school, one of them, and ultimately the reason why I made it through my graduate program, Dr. Bert Bouquet. He's a professor at Emory-Riddle Aeronautical University my alma mater, and I invited him to have this discussion and talk about the intricacies of what it means to find such a model and what happens when we don't have such a model in medical device development. So, of course, I would love to hear your comments, your thoughts, and anything that you'd like to add or share with regard to this topic, and we look forward to you checking out that episode next time. All right, folks, that's it for today great discussion as always please do share your thoughts with us and comment wherever you're listening to today's discussion and please do support the show leave us a five-star review and tell all your friends about us and consider supporting the human factors cast network on patreon links to all of our socials and our websites are in the description of this episode thank you again maggie for being on the show today much appreciate it. As for me, I've been your host, Heidi Merzad, and you can find me across all social media at HFUX Research. Thanks again for tuning in. Until next time, stay safe and effective.